Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio on this fine afternoon is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And we're continuing the trend of non-Missouri legislature members here today. And joining us in studio is... Tashara Jones, treasurer of the city of St. Louis. Now, you, you are a treasurer now, but you were in the in the Missouri legislature. So do you want to give us a bit of a background on where you're from, uh, your past before becoming the the treasurer of St. Louis, and, and what your roles are now? Sure. I'm St. Louis born and bred. I went to uh, Afton High School for those uh, uh, listening. Which high school did you go to? The first question. They would appreciate that. I went away to school uh, to Hampton University, majored in finance, came back home to St. Louis, went to St. Louis University, majored in or got a master's in health administration, served in the legislature for four years, left at, I guess, at the top of my game, some may add, um, (laughs) as assistant minority floor leader and then came home and ran for treasurer of the city of St. Louis and won in 2012. So tell me a little bit what the treasurer does for, 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 for listeners that may not know. Well, there are two main functions of the treasurer's office. There are treasury operations, which encompasses payroll and investments of the city funds that they currently aren't using, as well as a custodial function of the pension funds for fire and police. And then there's the parking division, uh, which was granted to the treasurer's office by the legislature back in 1951, uh, which includes on and off street parking. On street is about 10,153 meters. Yes, I have counted them. (laughs) And off street, we have six garages and two surface lots. Uh, Both divisions have about 150 employees total. Now, um, you succeeded the city's longest running treasurer, actually arguably one of the longest running city officials, Larry Williams. (laughs) And uh, who had done some innovative stuff early on as far as urban development downtown and the parking lots and stuff like that. But then the last few years, he'd run into some controversy over ghost employees and that sort of thing, kind of setting this up because you won a very crowded primary of um, various Democrats who were seeking to succeed him. Uh, What what has been going on in the office since you took over? Are there any, any particular changes that you've made? Uh, what sort of situation did you find when you moved in? The first thing um, I decided to do was uh, clean house a little bit. Uh, There was one in particular ghost employee who had made more news than others, uh, Mr. Robinson, so he was fired on my fourth day in office. Um, Then I wanted to bring in some competent staff. I added a chief of staff and counsel, uh, Jared Boyd, who I like to say I stole from Brian Cave, Um, added a deputy chief of staff um, and parking administrator to handle uh, a lot of the day-to-day things. Um, uh, The parking administrator we found in Los Angeles, his name is Carl Phillips. He comes to us with years of experience uh, managing parking at Exposition Park. Um, And we also uh, found that uh, our staff weren't really operating under clear policies and procedures. So we are still actually doing that. So we brought in an HR firm uh, to do an audit of all of our HR functions and our HR handbook. We're still going through that. Um, but started uh, making sure that people that there are clear policies, clear expectations, and that people are following them. Now, uh, 
just for our listeners, the city treasurer is one of, I think, eight now. Ten. Ten? Okay. Ten. Ten um, so-called county offices, which are elected citywide and are not, uh, like, governed by the mayor or anybody else. Right. So you have the three municipal offices and then the seven county offices. Correct. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. So the county office is separate from the mayor, comptroller, and board of aldermen president. Correct. um, and there's been moves off and on to try to um, either eliminate the county offices or making them under the mayor or different things. Now that you are city treasurer, do you have any thoughts about that since you were on the other side when you were a legislator? Right. So one of the things we've also noticed is that the treasurer's office, uh, as it stands today, has about $70 million of outstanding debt. And I know that this was an issue during the campaign. Yes. Um, And most of the debt is uh, paid for by the parking fund. So every parking ticket, every quarter we pay for and put in a meter, um, every time you go to a blues game or event or parking in a city-owned garage, that money goes directly to the parking fund first to pay down the debt. Um, So if we eliminated the treasurer's office, then the city would then be saddled with that debt as well, as well as the employees. So um, initially we thought that, you know, this would be the way to do it, but that would also, um, um, the city's credit rating would be at risk if we did that. So they're, they're taking on additional debt and additional employees. So, you know, it's six in one hand, half a dozen in another, another of whether or not this is a, the right place. But what we are finding is that um, we want to make sure that uh, we try and, and structure the office where we are able to maybe put an accelerated schedule to defease that debt um, so that the treasurer's office, you know, a third of our budget goes to that. So, so the budget, so we can then bring down the budget. So, as you kind of alluded to off air, I think the thing that you're probably most known for is parking tickets or parking in general. You kind of mentioned that if you're at the grocery store, somebody will come up to you and shake their fist and say, why did I get a parking ticket or, or something Or family like. reunions. That uh, happens there, too. Family <laughs> reunions. But one of the things that I noticed that I think is being dispatched right now that may alleviate some of the, the quarter pain, so to speak, are parking meters with credit cards on them. I think there are, are there's a pilot program going on in the Central West End, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Correct. And at, I'll continue. At the uh, intersection of Euclid and Maryland, we're doing a pilot project of about 60 or so single space meters that accept credit cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems we're seeing uh, is about only 20% of the money that we collect through uh, those meters, only 20% is on credit card. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are wondering, you know, what is the reason that people are a little apprehensive to use them? And we launched this pilot just after the Schnooks scandal. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And so we're finding, and even in some of the surveys that we're getting back, because we're asking people to take a survey, and um, most of them are afraid of using, you know, something just sitting there by itself. Uh, to put their credit card in. Um, and as a result of that and some of our travels around the country and looking at other cities and best practices, we're finding that single space meters may be a thing of the past and people are uh, more apt to use uh what what are called multi space meters? You see them mm-hmm. in Clayton now. Yeah, University that's what's City going to ask. Clayton them. has them, right? I, I mean, right. For a motorist, I got to say, in some ways, it can be kind of a pain in the neck because you got to <laughs> figure out where it is. You know, I mean, yeah. you park and then you got to figure out where the where mm-hmm. the where, where the where station the block, is. Yeah, the where the station, station is. So you got to find that. And I know, I was in Denver and Boulder recently, and um, 
Boulder has those. Right. So it seems like there's there's always pitfalls and challenges no matter what you do. You put just quarter meters, people are going to be like, well, I don't have enough quarters, I'm going to get a ticket. You put credit card meters there, there are all sorts of issues with functionality and cost because those things aren't free. So I guess mm-hmm. my question is, how widespread do you think some of these new fangled parking meters are going to be over the next few years, whether these it be new fangled parking whether it be meters. you know single space or multi space or something completely different, like you check in on your phone with an app or something like that. We're we're finding that multi space and pay by app or pay by cell is what the industry has called it are the most popular ones. And so on the multi space meter is usually you pay by the space. Right. So each space has a number, mm-hmm. and then you put that number into the machine, and then go about your business and and complete your transaction Mm -hmm. that's what we're what we're seeing in the industry well if you do with an app does it go on your credit card or how's that yes so you put your credit card information into the app and then the app then controls the parking and then we'll send you a message if you're you know down to 15 minutes saying hey you know you got 15 minutes left are you going to re-up you know do you want an extra hour i'm i'm curious about cost efficiency on this? Like, which is the better deal for the city? Is it using a credit card? Because then the city has to deal with credit card companies in terms of they'll be taking a cut. But then if you use quarters, then you're paying an employee who has to go around to all of the... So I'm curious, right. which one is the better deal for the city? And uh, I don't and know. we are still trying to figure that out as well. So um, we went to the International Parking Institute conference back in May. And if you can imagine... <laughs> now, where popular, was that? It's, it's a big-time party conference, the, I'm sure. It's a big-time parking <laughs> conference, and it, it travels. So it was in Fort Lauderdale. And if you can imagine the... <laughs> Uh, the convention center, the America Center, the, the largest expo hall that they have, covered with every type of meter, gate, parking, boot <laughs> imaginable. It's so overwhelming. But one of the things that we've gleaned from that is um, we're now interviewing some of the vendors to try to see what's the best thing for St. Louis And coming from the legislature, I always um, have been the kind of uh, politician that tries to get public input. So we're going to be announcing soon we're going to do some town halls and let people vent, have a little therapy. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're going to ask them, what would you like to see in a world-class parking operation in St. Louis? Because that's our goal for parking operations. Now, one of the other things I think has been in the news recently, um, not only because the Post-Dispatch wrote an editorial about it on Sunday, but also because of prominent mergers of development agencies and whatnot is a potential merger, reentry, congealing of the city and county, as I like to call it. There are multiple different ways people describe it because each thing could be different. If the city reenters as a municipality, that's a lot different from a mega government where you know St. Louis County and St. Louis City are just one entity. But if they did that, though, that that would eliminate our office. But yes, mm-hmm. either way. It would affect uh, an office like yours. Even if the city just reentered as a municipality, it's likely that the treasurer's office in the city would disappear. So 
obviously we'd like your I, I guess we may have some insight on on where you're thinking but i did want to just ask what are your thoughts on this this issue and where do you think it goes from here well i'm generally supportive of a city merger um or city county merger and i am not concerned on whether or not i lose my job out mm-hmm. of the whole deal mm-hmm. um i came to this office with experience in in the in the nonprofit and in the private sector and could probably go back if, you know, the county merged and my office was eliminated. Um, So I'm not one of those people that are just protecting my turf, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, However, there have been articles that are are out there wondering if government mergers, you know, really do save the city's money after they merge. I posted one on my Twitter feed not too long ago from Governing Magazine. And um, but I've also seen where it works. I think Princeton, New Jersey had two different boroughs or whatever, and they merged and it and actually ended up in a 10 percent savings on uh, property taxes for its citizens. So all of that said, I, I think that there's also some larger issues that I think we need to pay attention to. Um, we have a, a whole host of fragmented government throughout St. Louis County, 91 municipalities, right. 43 uh, police or fire districts, 60 police districts, 22 school districts. I think we need to take a look at what, you know, what other efficiencies are there throughout all of those municipalities as well as the city entering the county. And then there's also the sales tax issue. They, right, they're having an issue. Right. They're having an issue on um, how to uh, effectively disperse sales taxes within all of those counties. So, you know, can we solve that first before we, we, we start talking about a merger? Now, you were in the legislature <clears throat> yes. before, you were in the, before you became city treasurer. So you have a perspective of at least hearing what the fallout is on the legislative side. Because for a lot of this, the legislature would have to play a role. I mean, unless they tried right. to get something on the ballot. But frankly, uh, without getting into all the, all the could it pass, could it not pass there still would likely be a role for the legislature in that. So my question is, as a legislator, when you were in the legislature, was there much even appetite for dealing with any of this? No, there was no appetite for dealing with it when we were in the legislature. There were a couple of uh, legislators who uh, filed a bill or or a uh, resolution every year to address that, but they never went anywhere. So you know, there were other things that we were focused on, like the $24 billion budget that we had to balance every year. (laughs) Or many other things. Were you part of these secret meetings, by the way, that the Post-Dispatch alluded to? No, I was not. I was really surprised by the secret meetings that were going on to decide our fate without our input. And what do you think of this idea of having the state uh, decide this as all, like the entire state, as opposed to just the city and the county? Because that seems to be, you know... I understand why they'd want to do the state, because there's fear that if you only did the city and the county, it wouldn't pass. And the statewide has a better chance of succeeding. But there does seem to be some questions of whether that's a decision that the entire state should make versus the city and the county. What is kind of your thoughts on that? Just like I wasn't happy with the ballot initiative for local control because I didn't feel like people in Platt and Sedalia should decide whether or not we should should have control of our police department. I feel the same way about a statewide initiative to decide whether or not the city should reenter the county. Uh, Again, I think that that's that decision is left up to the people who vote and live in the city of St. Louis and and the county in St. Louis County. Well, I think it's a lot more complicated, too. I'm not sure 
even if you had the state sort of weigh in because of the fact that the city is its own county. I mean, there's so many legal aspects of it. Right. I mean, basically, the city and the county would have to approve whatever is done or not done. And if you're trying to make a mega government, you'd have to have every one of those 91 munici- 90 municipalities now that St. George is no longer. But, right. uh, but uh, you'd have to have approval in each one of those, which makes it rather... And just the, the idea of a, the, the idea of a mega government, how would that government be structured? Would there be like a St. Louis Congress that's like a 50 person, you know, council that that it's done? I understand mm-hmm. how it would be done if the city reentered. They probably would just expand the county council by two or three people. Right. The idea of, you know, a mega government, I don't really think people have thought through like structurally how that's going to work. Right. Or would we structure it like New York where they have boroughs and each borough has its own government you know there are so many questions mm-hmm. that, that we just really don't have answers well for. and people cite indianapolis a lot i'm from indiana and actually know that situation pretty well mm-hmm. and then I, in the 1970s when uh, richard luger was mayor of indianapolis um in effect they created they got the voters to approve unigov where the city of indianapolis and marion county became one and the same but all these municipalities had to approve it and not all of them did so there's several what I would call island. There's there's several island communities that are surrounded by Indianapolis. Mm. I mean, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. and Indianapolis also took in a lot of what was at the time farmland. I mean, I had relatives who had a far out subdivision in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden there were all these farmers and their subdivision and everything else are mm-hmm. part of uh, the city of Indianapolis. Now, forty years, you know, it's been most of it's been developed now. But my point is, it was uh, they did it early. I don't know if they could do it now. You know, I mean, they did it back when a lot of it was still farmland. And again, uh, for example, the speedway, the motor speedway in Indianapolis right, right. is in the town of Speedway. Speedway <laughs> did not agree to join this. So Speedway is surrounded by the Marion whole, County whole, and Unigo. Marion County, i.e. Indianapolis. So maybe the right. arch will become its own city. Or something <laughs> right. Like I just wanted to throw that out there. Right. Arch city. <laughs> So I guess, you know, we mentioned like 500 times you're, you're a former legislator. You're probably getting sick of hearing that by now. But one of, the, one of the things that we wanted you to touch on, just as we had the former House Speaker touch on, is kind of your perspective on this upcoming veto session. Obviously, you don't get a vote in it. You're probably happy you don't have to be in a vote for this. But you've been in situations before where, where there were vetoes that were overridden and overturned. How do the dynamics work for that, especially coming from – uh, the Democratic side um, in the House, where they're outnumbered, but if there are defections of Republicans, defections you know, of, yeah, it, they do right. make a difference, especially if they decide to overturn things. So, what's kind of what's kind of your experience in veto session? What do you what do you think we can expect for this one? You know, I I really don't know. And if I look at you know what the vote has been on uh, two fifty three, which is the most controversial issue that they're going to be tackling um, outside of the gun bill, which is the income tax cut bill, right? Those, the income tax things. bill. I'm I'm sorry. I'm, I'm oh no no, no. I'm still in like yeah. I'm still in house speak. I always follow things by the number. <laughs> well, it, it's not <laughs> just income tax cuts. So sure. it's also sales tax increase. So it's right. like two two prongs there. Um, I. There were some, I guess, Democrats that voted for uh, that bill and, you know, some Republicans that did not. And um, usually what happens, at least in, in, in my position, 
my former position in leadership is we try to encourage our members to stick with the governor as much as possible um, because, you know, you really don't want to be seen as, as the Democrat not old, upholding a Democrat governor's veto. Um, it's really frowned upon, not, not saying that they're going to take a caucus position on it, but that's one way that they could hold their membership together. We rewrote the uh, bylaws uh, for uh, for the Democratic caucus when I was there, I led that effort uh, just to make sure that, you know, we can hold our members in line uh, when we have sen sensitive situations that affect a lot of Missourians like this bill will. Um, there's a huge uh, cut to education that I'm more concerned about than anything else uh, dealing with this bill. Yeah, big it. Oh, continue. What, what other ways do you see this bill? Should it be overridden, which the common thinking is it, it doesn't really stand a chance. But if it should, how else would it impact St. Louis, do you think? Um, there's a huge, uh, I believe there would be an income tax refund that would be due to uh, several million Missourians, per uh, Chris Coster's opinion. Yes, if, we should talk if, about that. If the federal... Um, Let's well, call the marketplace fair. It has to do with yeah. internet, internet taxes. Right. Internet yeah. sales right. taxes. Internet sales tax. Right. Um, and Missouri is is consistently on the top ten of places uh, for the U.S. Uh, uh, commerce for uh, our low taxes. So what are we lowering? And I don't believe at one minute uh, what uh, Governor Rick Perry said that if we don't up if they don't uphold or if they don't override the governor's veto that throws of businesses would leave Missouri. Hordes. Hordes. <laughs> yeah. I was there. Hordes of businesses would leave Missouri. That's that's false because people make a decision to uh, do business in Missouri because of our business climate, because of our economics. Um, this bill is just bad in, in all terms of the word bad. Um, and the average family on the income tax cut would only see, what, a couple of dollars? That's not worth it. It's not worth it at all. If, if we really wanted to do something meaningful, we would take a look at the uh, at our income tax structure and how uh, nine thousand dollars is the floor, I believe, for for paying income tax, and and that we should be really looking at the structure and making sure that everybody pays their fair share on Missouri's income tax structure. That hasn't been uh, revisited since was it the early nineteen hundreds, I believe. So nineteen thirties, yeah. right. Now, looking at the makeup of the legislature now and the way it was when you were there and as far as experience, you were talking about this before we went on the air, mm -hmm. about your thoughts about what the impact term limits has had or not had. Did Would you repeat some of that? It was sure. very interesting. Sure. So without term limits, I wouldn't have been able to serve. My legislator, my legislator would not have termed out of office and I wouldn't have been able to serve. So there, you know, that's one pro. However, I'd see so many cons to term limits um, there isn't an air of bipartisan cooperation anymore. Um, the, there's this hyperpartisanship that exists. And, and, and really, we don't take time to make sure that a bill is right and it's right for Missouri and it's right for our citizens. And in and, and, and past legislatures, you would see that a bill would come back and back and back year after year after year, sometimes, you know, almost four or five years before a bill passed. Um, and even then, as we saw with the Outstanding Schools Act, it wasn't the right bill. But um, still, we took time to to work together to to um, make sure that, you know, 
you didn't get everything you wanted. You got 80 percent of what you wanted. And nowadays, you know, we're just pushing through legislation, not thinking of the unintended consequences, not thinking of how we could lose federal dollars, like with the gun bill um, or how Missourians wouldn't be able to get on airplanes with our IDs because of real ID. We have to take a look at the unintended consequences and term limits. Um, unfortunately, we have a lot of unexperienced legislators, and I was one myself, but also all the institutional knowledge now lies with the lobbyists and not with the legislature. Because I remember one of the issues that you were heavily involved in was education policy. I think you were the sponsor of a charter school bill that I guess eventually passed. Yes, if I'm it not passed mistaken. by last year. And I guess that was an example, even though I think you were strongly Democratic on a host of issues, that was an example where you tried to work together with Republicans to get a bill. Was that an example of how it was possible to work together? Was even that difficult for you because of what you just said? Uh, that was an example where it was possible to work together. Um, honestly, I, I took time in the legislature. My first year, I was seen and not heard. I wanted to make sure that I made personal relationships with people before I asked them for something. And mm -hmm. that's just how I operate. But the charter school bill was one of those examples where... Um, we had a, we all care we we all cared about children. Charter schools is one of those things where the original bill was very loose, and we saw the unintended consequences of imagine schools, for example, uh, a for-profit entity coming in and not teaching children and just trying to open several schools and and get their numbers up so they could get as much state money as they could. Um, but there were. There were just so many things that weren't addressed in the original legislation that we tried to address it going forward. And and again, that was a situation where everybody didn't get everything they wanted. We sat in meetings for hours and hours and hours with all of the stakeholders included, including AFT, NEA, the MSTA. I'm sorry I'm using acronyms, but that's how I remember it. Um, with all of the stakeholders, just to make sure that, you know, we went line by line, paragraph by paragraph. Everybody didn't get what they wanted, but everybody got something. Mm -hmm. So I guess that there there is a diamond in the rough, so to speak. Just sometimes. a little. A now, little. Yeah. Now, I don't want to end without talking. You mentioned how you'd seen some stuff on Twitter. You yourself have become one of the more famous Twitterers or <laughs> tweeters, along with uh, Senator Claire McCaskill and Speaker Tim Jones, a few and. Mayor Slay, who are known for their tweets. Mainly yeah. because of the misadventures of your son and, yes. and weird things that he says to you. Now, so let's, says, now let's make clear how old her son is. Yes. He's five years old. Uh -huh. okay. And you never know what he's going to say next. <laughs> so, so you got in the center of a controversy a little uh, recently. Do you want to talk about that with sure. some of your tweets? Sure. I um got in the middle of the controversy of the Missouri State Rodeo. And the reason why I was so um, angry about what happened is that there we are using state dollars to fund the rodeo. And I don't think that has been said enough um, where, you know, the, the rodeo clown dressed up in a as a or in a President Obama mask. And um, and I called it for what it was. I thought it was a racist act. And there are people who said, well, they did that to other, pres to other presidents. But no, this was different. They fiddled with his lips. They stepped a broom up his behind. Um, and I just felt that that was uh, just in poor taste. And that's not what Missouri is about. So I tweeted, um, A, the first tweet actually didn't get as much coverage as the second. The first tweet <laughs> was uh, racism rears its ugly head at the Missouri State Fair. The second tweet was, um, since November 2008, um, 
anti-Obama sentiment has been masked under the guise of racism or no racism has been masked under the guise of anti-Obama sentiment. Mm -hmm. And I mean that because we have never seen um, as much uh, ire and vitriol directed at a, at a president in history who just happens to be African-American. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody who disagrees with Obama's policies, I don't agree with them 100 percent of the time. I'm having heartburn on Syria myself. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not saying that everybody who disagrees with President Obama or disagrees with his policies is a racist. However, I cannot ignore the amount of disrespect that has been directed at this president who just happens to be African-American. Well, interestingly, after that mini hubbub came about, there was a Washington Post article that, while I wasn't I wasn't enthralled by everything that was in it, there were kind of examples of that that you mentioned of people who were, you know, against Obama and doing it in kind of a borderline racial manner. So I did find that interesting that there were those pretty specific examples of that after you were getting pillared with a lot of criticism. Did you read that article, by the way? I think it was that Jonathan Capehart. It might have been. I'm not 100 percent sure. I think I did. And well, I watched uh, I watch MSNBC all all day, every day, or if I'm not listening to it in the car. And they had several conversations about race because this happened to happen just before the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. So everybody is happen to, happening to be talking about race um, and, and whether or not King's dream has been realized in 2013, 50 years after the march. And uh, this incident was brought up as well as, you know, other incidents of, you know, uh, burning him in effigy and comparing him to Hitler and, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's out there. And, and until we have, uh, unfortunately, race is one of those things that makes people uncomfortable when you call it out. Can you talk a little bit about what the response was when when you sent out these tweets? I, you retweeted some of them, but I'm sure that that wasn't all of them. Oh, my God. My, my Twitter feed was full of vitriol and ire and some things I would never say to another human being, um, even about my son. Uh, they called him an affirmative action spawn. Uh, there, uh, and 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 we've lost the uh, the 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 uh, art of disagreeing without being disagreeable. Sure, you can disagree with me on whether or not you you thought my my tweet was right or wrong. I get that, um, but to call me all sorts of names that God or my parents didn't give me uh, because I expressed my opinion, which I have the First Amendment right to do, that's that's just crossing the line. I just think that's crossing the line. Well, well, I, I, I was most surprised when the mayor didn't take immediate action against you, as was said. So. <laughs> I know. that I, I wanted people to call the mayor. Please call the mayor yeah. on me. Yeah. That happens a lot. That yeah. actually happens more than you would think. That was, yeah, we want our listeners to realize that we recognize that the mayor has no control over the city treasurer's office. Exactly. They, they thought that I was an appointed uh, office or that I reported to the mayor. And these were city employees, or not city employees, a, a city, so-called city residents. But most of the uh, ire came from places or people that couldn't even vote for me, from Texas, Florida, the list goes on and on. Now, you're related to another previous citywide official who had himself a controversy in the pre-Twitter universe. Yes. And he is actually on Twitter, and I follow him. He's very insightful, and I I think he 
posts all sorts of. I'm not even being sarcastic. He really now, is. Now we're talking yeah. about former Comptroller Vervis Jones. Yes. Now, did has he offered you any advice during all this? Because I'm old enough that I covered some of the controversies that he had with then Mayor um, Vince Shamel. And uh, but the point is, can it's you just imagine the if Twitter were around when Shamel and and my dad were in office, what that would look like? <laughs> it would be interesting, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it would be interesting. So my my dad is quite snarky and insightful, mm-hmm. um, but he has you know his basic uh, piece of advice is just ignore it, you know, just ignore it, and you know, you know, and. respond to what you want to but you know for the most part I have to ignore it and just hold myself to another standard because I realize as a public official uh, there are people just waiting to pounce on uh, on some of my tweets and so I I really try to think before I tweet yeah I guess to end (laughs) it on a more optimistic note what what has kind of lessons has your dad taught you about politics I'm, I'm curious to know as somebody who was who who's father was kind of in the political arena and high profile what what sort of words of wisdom has he told you throughout your political career that you that you've really taken to heart um he's always told me to be strong and be my own person um, obviously i do realize that i live in his shadow and that's not something i'm either ashamed or afraid of um he uh, gives me advice you know i talk to my dad about three or four times a day he's my best friend and he also picks my son up from school every day <laughs> um but he you know is he has a ton of insight on how city politics works so when i have a question a lot of times i will call him and ask him how he handled uh, a certain situation either dealing with uh the the treasurer's office or just dealing with city government because 20 plus years ago he transferred some accountants to the treasurer's office um, to because the books weren't being kept in a in a good fashion so he had you know the comptroller has uh, jurisdiction over all of the offices to be able to transfer accounting staff uh, when they see fit so he's he's just been an an excellent uh, resource uh, for how city government works and and he's priceless you know, to have that kind of yeah, I was counsel. at I was right. at the inauguration, and I know several aldermen uh, gave shout outs to him, including Sharon Tyus, who was a former alder woman who is now a current alder woman. Right, right. So I noticed that, and I know that a lot of people hold him in very high regard. So. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I have to tread lightly because I don't want to destroy that. Well, so. you don't want him to not pick up your son either. Yes, that too. That too. This is the hot news of the day. Mervis Jones now picks up his grandson. Every day from school. Yes, he does. And on that note, uh, we'll, we'll end it there. You can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. <clears throat> You can follow me on Twitter at CSMcDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the treasurer on Twitter. And most importantly, you can keep up with the hashtag of... Hashtag Stuff Aiden Says at... Tashara. T-I-S-H-A-U-R-A. Or if you want to follow the treasurer's office Twitter account, we have our own Twitter account at STL Treasurer. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.